and hope you're doing well today and want to also welcome you to our service this morning and thank you for worshiping with us today. Before we uh, get into uh, scripture in just a couple of moments, um, I spent uh, some time on Friday uh, speaking with one of our missionaries uh, that serve in uh, South Africa. And through the course of this conversation, he shared with me a need that has arisen there um, in their ministry. And so I want to share that with you. This is uh, Jonathan Highfill. Many of you know the Highfills. And I will tell you, I mentioned this before uh, when Dave Rudolph was here with us during our missions month. If there is a particular pocket right now that I'm aware of in the world and the mission team that God is using in unspeakable, amazing ways... It's the team on the Garden Route, Cape Town area of South Africa. And so this morning, um, I wanted to show you, I asked Jonathan to send me this clip. It's about two minutes long. And I thought, I, I thought about doing my own best impersonation of Jonathan Highfill. He didn't think that was a good idea, and I don't think so either. So I'd rather you hear it right from him. Hi, Grace family. We want to let you guys know about an incredible opportunity that the Lord has brought for us for ministry, but we also need your help. One of the most striking needs in South Africa is the orphan crisis, and God has laid it upon our hearts to become foster parents. We've been going through the process for the past six months, and we'll be able to take up to six children as foster parents. But the problem is this, we don't have room for six children in our home, and so we're gonna to have to find another place to stay. Now we've considered this for the last 18 months that we've been here, and we've recognized that renting is not a good option for us, simply because rent rises 10% every year in South Africa, no questions asked. And so a property that's affordable quickly becomes unaffordable within a couple of years, and you have to move. Orphans need stability in their lives. Our family needs stability. And we also need uh, a space that can grow as our ministry grows. Now, we've been keeping an eye on the market for the past six months, and we've found almost nothing until last week. Last week, God brought on the market a property that is absolutely perfect for our needs. It's four bedrooms, six bathrooms. It has an additional uh, add-on building that right now is being used for storage and workshop, but it could be used as a multi-purpose building for conferences, for even a church plant, for any kind of need. In addition to that, it has a guest house so that you can come and visit us if you like. And it has two acres of property, and that's unheard of here in Nizna. So this is the absolute best scenario for our family, our ministry needs as we grow and expand and God allows us to foster. The property is going for 50% of its market value. It's priced at $300,000. We're very happy to go and get a loan for that amount, but the problem is this, as non-residents of South Africa, we have to pay 50% down. So we need $300,000, but we must raise $150,000 immediately in order to be able to make an offer on this property before someone else grabs it up. That's where we need your help. We have called our supporters, our friends, family members, and we have asked for donations. We've been able to get some, but we really appeal to you, our sending church. Would you consider helping us with this? The need is great, and we desperately need to bring in the money. We're excited about the opportunity. We believe God has brought it to us. Uh, by faith, we're stepping out and asking you, 
Would you get involved? Would you see how you can help us to make a difference in this community and in the needs of orphans? Thank you so much for your help, your prayers, and God bless you all. Jonathan was telling me that um, the land was owned by an older gentleman uh, who is simply trying to get rid of the property, get rid of the land, and uh, it seems that the Lord has really opened a tremendous opportunity uh, for them. There's not many mission fields necessarily that, that I can speak to with any level of, of knowledge, but I have been there. I've been right where he, not right where he was standing, but in Nizna, I've been there, and the orphan crisis there is just that. It is an absolute crisis. Um, I know when we were there, we went to, we visited a, um, a town that was, um, it was predominantly folks that had AIDS. Um, most of them, many of them, their parents had died. And so you had children that had nobody. They were just running around. And we actually, when we were there, there was a lady, her name was Lamanello, I think I always butcher that name, but she had a house that she brought all the kids after school, and they would come to her home and do homework. Otherwise, they would be out, you know, doing whatever. And uh, she was actually in the process of adding on to that house and, and just giving kids even a temporary place um, to be. So the need there is, is great. And even with Dave, when Dave was here, just it, it's, it's amazing that these opportunities are coming to them. It's just one after the other. So I would, I would ask you, along with Jonathan, if you would pray about what the Lord would have you to do to help them uh, do what the Lord is put into their path. This past week, actually, I guess it was about a month or so ago, I had one of my long-held assumptions about life shattered. You ever had that happen to you? I read an article entitled, Do Couples Look Alike? How many of you have always heard the theory, the rumor, the idea that the longer people are married together, that they begin to, what, look like each other? Well, for decades, this has been a debated topic, and apparently this question was recently definitively brought to a resolution. In 1987, researchers suggested that couples' faces were not similar at the outset of marriage, but, this is 1987 here, that with the degree of convergence, they wrote, positively correlated with the couple's rating of marriage quality. In other words, the idea was that if they had a good marriage, that over time they started to physically look like each other, and that was in 1987. According to the hypothesis, couples tend to begin to look like one another because they occupy the same environments, engage the same activities, eat the same food. That is abundantly not true in our house. I don't know about yours. And mimic each other's emotional expressions. And in 1987, they figured all these factors bring it to the point that people begin to look like each other. However, I used to believe that, but apparently it's no longer a fact. Stanford University... Uh, has done a much more recent study. I won't go into the details of the research that they did, but they studied uh, many subjects and looked at this topic, and they concluded that, in fact, that these target individuals 
even using facial recognition software and other means that the report that was published in scientific reports found that they did not find evidence of the convergence and physical appearance hypothesis spouses faces did not become more similar over time spouses faces tended to be similar but they did not become more alike over time and the assumption was based on this research that people look for a partner to marry with someone not only with similar values but with similar similar looks so therefore debunking this idea now that bursted my bubble i don't know if it burst yours but here's the point if you are in christ there is someone you should be looking more and more like and his name is jesus christ We don't know physically exactly what Jesus looked like, but what we do know is that as believers in Christ, we are called to be in the process of spiritual maturity that brings us to the place that we look like Christ. We resemble Him in character. We resemble Him in His Uh, life that he demonstrated for us as seen in the gospels if you are in christ this in fact desire to be holy this desire for christ likeness it is woven into your spiritual dna it should be part of who you are i've noticed as i've gotten older the more and more i look like my father who is now in his 80s i don't think i look like i'm 80 just yet but i'm starting to look more and more like him Over time, as a child of God, you should be, therefore, looking more like your heavenly Father. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 1, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as the one who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. All of it. Not part of it, not some of it. All of your uh, conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. The writer of Hebrews said it this way, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Galatians 2, Paul writes this, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one has been or ever will be justified. Now, we we know this, human experience tells us that Not every action, attitude, and thought that you had today, that you've had in the last five minutes, are holy. Therefore, each and every one of us, to some degree, feel less than holy. But we must remember that in Christ, we have been declared holy. We'll talk about that much more in just a few moments. You wake up each and every day, if you are in Christ, holy. If you're in Christ, you are holy whether or not you feel that way or not. Now, you may not believe that or you may question that. Well, let's turn to the last couple of verses of Philippians. And we have been studying through this book over the last several weeks now, and we have reached the end of the book. 
And Paul uses a word. Some messages are on paragraphs. Some messages are on a verse. Today is predominantly on one word. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 21. Paul says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Today, I want to highlight one simple word. You probably guessed the word. The word is saint. Paul says, greet every saint. Now, this word saint comes from a Greek word, hagios. It is a reference to God's holy people. Now, we're going to go back actually to another book of the Bible that we studied right before Philippians and go back to 1 Corinthians for just a moment. We've looked at this book and we studied this book a while ago, but go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and I want to look at a few this morning references, times, places in Scripture where Paul uses this word saint. Now, this one in 1 Corinthians is exceptionally telling to me. It's very interesting. Notice what Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Paul says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, those sanctified. Notice those next two words again. In Christ, that is also hugely important. He says, those that have been sanctified in Christ called to be saints. Together with all those in every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now, saints is a very interesting word to use in reference to the people living in Corinth. Why? Well, if you're familiar with the book of Corinthians, if you are familiar a little bit with the city of Corinth, if you're familiar even a little bit with this church, it doesn't take us long to know that this church in Corinth was, first of all, very divided. They were divided into cliques, groups of people. This group didn't like this group, and this group didn't associate with this group. They were also also a church that was known for marked sexual immorality in their church. Blatant. They were known to be people that were puffed up with spiritual pride. They were taking one another to court. They were suing each other for frivolous reasons. This was a ministry, a place much different, by the way, than the church at Philippi, which Paul talks about them in very high regard as far as their character, as far as their ability to give toward the work of the ministry. When he talks about the church at Philippi, we could kind of see that word saint and say, well, yeah, they were very mature believers. They were very faithful in what God had called them to do. But it's telling to me that even even in the book of 1 Corinthians, a church that was known for its spiritual immaturity, Paul still greets them with this word, saint. And yet they're immature, sinful, divided. Well, in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians, notice a couple of other words that will come into play when we get back to Philippians in a few minutes. They were sanctified. 
in Christ. Those two little words, by the way, in Christ, occur by the Apostle Paul over 70 times in his writings. Why? Because it is significant. Sanctified, by the way, means that we have been set aside for God's purposes. They are in Christ. Notice, this sanctification is not, are you ready, in you. You're not sanctified by something in you internally that allows you to have this opportunity to become spiritually mature. No, we are in Christ. This is reserved for those that have put their faith in Christ. They are resting in Christ for their redemption. They're not working toward sanctification. They're not working toward salvation. They understand that sanctification is both punctiliar. They are sanctified at a point in time considered to be righteous, but it's also progressive. We are working out our salvation. We are growing in sanctification. We are growing in spiritual maturity. So when we think about the word justified in relation to the word saint, we understand that a saint then is one who has been washed in the blood of Christ. They have been redeemed through the power of the gospel. As a result, they have been justified, sanctified. They are now in the process of looking more and more like Christ. It was through salvation that this became possible. Again, Paul referring to the people of Corinth, he says that they were saints, Along with all those, he says, that were, had called upon the Lord saint, he points out the singular church. We're going to talk about that tonight, by the way. How do saints relate to the body of Christ? I said it last week. Several people commented about it. And it is an observation that in today's culture, the church is increasingly becoming viewed as optional or unneeded, unnecessary by God's people who are called saints. And that is a shame. The church has always been the place that saints gather to worship, to come together, to love one another, to be the body of Christ. And yet in today's age, people who call themselves saint seem to have a complete disregard with the local body of Christ. Come back tonight, hear the rest of that rant, because it's a problem, in my opinion, and I'm usually right. Being a saint, then, is based on God's calling. Now, that may make you a little bit uncomfortable. When you think about the Apostle Paul for a moment, the Apostle Paul became an apostle because God called him to be an apostle. Salvation begins when God, through His Holy Spirit, draws you to salvation. He draws you through His Holy Spirit, convicts you of your sin, shows you your sin, and you then are drawn to salvation. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1-2 also uses the plural saints to talk about individual believers. The NIV translates this, by the way, beautifully. He says that you have called to be holy. That's God's calling on your life. Being a saint then 
very simply defined as being a believer in Christ. So, go back to Philippians for a moment. In Philippians 4, we find this word saint. If you remember way back in Philippians 1.1, Paul says to all the saints, here it is again, in Christ Jesus. Those that are saints in Christ who are at Philippi. And in this introduction, he includes the pastors and he includes the deacons in his introduction to this book. But in Philippians 4, he ends this book much where he started talking to the saints. Again, holy ones, those that were set apart by God. Now, I want to talk about this word kind of a little bit at length this morning. Because I I fear that sometimes this word saint is sometimes misconstrued and misunderstood, even by believers. Paul is not writing the book of Philippians to dead people. He is not writing this book to a group of people that have died and have had thrust upon them the title saint. That would be bizarre. When he's talking about saints, he's talking about living and breathing believers. That in fact, the church, the church at Philippi, the church at Corinth, the church in Galatia, the church in uh, other cities around the known world at that time, Rome, that they were those that were collected together into a body of believers to serve as representatives in that local community, in that local city. Once again, Philippians 1.1, we find this, this phrase, in Christ. This includes ownership. The picture is that someone who is in Christ is one who belongs to God. They have faith in Christ, and therefore, they have been redeemed. Now, Roman Catholicism has used this word saint to describe those who belong to a higher order of Christians who have done something amazing or unique. Roman Catholicism has canonized certain people after their death and that then they are prayed to. They are then considered to be somebody unique. Now, one of the more popular saints is a saint that you probably have heard of, a saint that you probably are hearing about right now. It is the saint, Saint Nicholas. Now, Saint Nicholas was a very popular saint. He was commemorated in both the Eastern and Western churches. In fact, he was known for his beneficence. He was known for his kindness. And December 6th was declared to be Saint Nicholas Day. In fact, this man was somebody who was uh, seen as a person who, who offered protection and intercession for a society, a church, or a place. So someone who is considered to be a patron saint is somebody who gives particular protection and intercession in a prayer sense for a person, a society, or a place. Thus, St. Patrick is the patron saint for Ireland. Nicholas was probably a 
bishop in the city of Myra in the fourth century, and he became a man who was known for his generosity and kindness. And there were all kinds of legends that began to grow surrounding this man by the name of Saint Nicholas. In the Middle Ages, for instance, um, many parts of Europe became under the patronage of of Nicholas, Russia, Greece, and other places were seen. Moscow, the city, was under the patronage of Nicholas. And there's a story told about him that there was a man who had three daughters. He couldn't afford their dowries, and they were going to be sold into prostitution. And so Nicholas threw gold through their window in order for them to be rescued and would not fall prey to the uh, those that were going to take them into Um, prostitution. So, we have this Roman Catholic idea. Nicholas was a man who was a bishop in a local place, but he was canonized as a person that was supposed to be prayed to and sought on behalf of other people. In other words, a patron saint was someone who had this special relationship with something that was sacred. It was a moral perfection. Or this picture of somebody with exceptional teaching ability. Now here's the problem. There is no scriptural distinction made that any particular believer is canonized and prayed to and sought after for particular protection. So when we say the word saint, we're not talking about Saint Nicholas. We're not talking about Saint Patrick. We're not talking about those who have had some kind of supposed supernatural ability. Scripture, when it uses the word saint, is talking about every person who has been redeemed through faith in Christ. Now, personally, I I would guess that the Apostle Paul would be greatly disturbed to hear that the word saint was a word used for only a few select people who were Christians. For the Apostle Paul, the New Testament use of the word saint, it is simply a word for Christian. In fact, Paul uses this term over 40 times in his letters. So when we see the word saint, we are talking about Christians. Nowhere in Scripture. Nowhere. Do you find the idea of venerating someone to become a saint? We are never commanded to pray to a saint. We are never commanded to burn a candle to a saint. Saints are not to be worshipped. They were people who worshipped the true living God. That's what a saint is. They're not worshipped. They worship. In fact, this word saint refers to the believer who is well known for writing books and preaching great sermons. But this word saint is also for the believer who faithfully serves in a local church every Sunday. It's for the believer who outwardly struggles with addiction. It, has a, it, it, it is a reference to a person who is a, 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 a person in Christ who has a bad temper or has a rocky marriage or who lied to his boss today. In other words, saint is a reference to an imperfect person who loves Christ, who is simply a believer in Christ, a follower in Christ. It's not a reference to a person who is sinless, but they have been set aside for the work of God. 
Now, please don't understand. I'm not arguing that if you claim to be a Christian, a saint, that you can live life however you want. We certainly don't we know from a scriptural perspective, we don't use our positional sainthood as an excuse to live in contradiction to Scripture. In fact, it's just the opposite. We are justified in Christ, so we are called to live a holy, name, a holy life in the name of Christ. There are no miracles or heroic feats necessary to be called a saint. All you need is faith in Christ. In fact, it's interesting to me that six out of Paul's 13 letters in the New Testament use this word. I'm going to read them to you. Listen, Romans chapter 1, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. We've already read that, but Paul says to the church of God that is in Corinth, for those sanctified in Christ, called to be saints. Together, by the way. 2 Corinthians 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ, Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, and all the saints. Ephesians 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Philippians 1, we've already read it, but to hear it again, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Colossians 1, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now notice, by the way, nowhere do we find the idea that being in Buddha gets you salvation. Or being in Muhammad, or being in Joseph Smith, only Christ can save Redemption is only found in Christ. It is not found in my good works. It's not found in a religious leader. It is found in the true one and only monogenes, Son of God. He's the only way. The way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by Christ. We have to be in Him. Now, let's make some observations about this word saint. Particularly observations from Philippians chapter 4. Notice Paul says that there were saints in Rome. He says, greet every saint in Christ. The brothers who are with me greet you. Now remember, if you think back through the book of Philippians, Paul was in Rome, in prison, writing back to the church at Philippi. And he says that there are people with him, the brothers, the saints with him in Rome. I find that very curious. We know that Timothy, Epaphroditus, was with him during this period of time. But he says, he doesn't say a group of saints greet you. It's not just a couple. He says, all the saints greet you. Especially those that are of Caesar's household. Now, this word all is interesting to me. We'll get to the ones of Caesar's household in just a minute. But these saints included the, the believers in Rome that were slandering Paul. This group includes the believers in Rome who refused to help him. So when the Apostle Paul says, all the saints that are here in Rome uh, uh, greet you, yes, he's talking about men like Epaphroditus. He's talking about people that had put their faith in Christ from Caesar's household. Yes, he's talking about them too. But he's also talking about the stinkers that were in Rome. 
the ones who were slandering him, they were still saints. Imperfect people set aside for the cause of Christ. And these, by the way, these, these believers in Caesar's household, some of them were cooks, builders, guards, stablemen, musicians, custodians, soldiers, judges. Who knows what this group included? But there were people that were under the direction of Caesar himself that had come to Christ. Remember, when the Apostle Paul was sitting in prison, he could rejoice because it was his imprisonment that was allowing the gospel to spread even in Caesar's own house, even under his own nose. That tells me that saints today come from all walks of life, don't they? Saints today come from every race, every nation, every socioeconomic status. Saints come from broken homes. Saints come from, quote-unquote, stable homes. You see, saints come from all walks. Oh, you watched the video from Jonathan in South Africa. Those that have put their faith in Christ are saints just like you, just like me, because they are believers in Christ, part of the body of Christ. So it begs the question then, what does this all mean and what does this all look like? We'll talk more about some particulars of sainthood this evening as it uh, especially relates to the church. But you may be asking yourself then, get through all the you know, discussion here that we've had so far, what is a saint? A saint is simply put, a saved sinner. A saint, by the way, is not the opposite of a sinner. There's only sinners. Some are saved and some are not. A saint simply means that a person, a sinner, who has put their faith in Christ has been called a holy one because they're better than unsaved people. No, 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 no. Not because they're better. They've just received the grace of God that God's call upon their life for redemption, that they have repented of their sin, put their faith in Christ, and through the holiness of Christ, they have been declared righteous, holy. Not because they're good, not because every sin has been erased from their life, not because their hearts have become perfectly pure. It means that they, have whole, they are holy because they have been set apart. They have been called out of the world to experience God's grace and mercy and redemption. Do, do, you, remember, do you remember where you were the moment you received Christ as your Savior? I didn't ask you the exact date or time. I don't know the exact date or time, but I could take you to the spot. I could tell you exactly what happened. I, it's as crystal clear as if it happened five minutes ago. In fact, if it happened five minutes ago, I don't remember it. I walked from my office into here, and Lexi can verify this. I walked in from my office right here, encouraged them before they played and sang this morning. Did a great job, by the way. And I totally forgot what I came in here for. Still don't remember. But I remember the moment that I came to Christ crystal clear. 
My little sinful nine-year-old heart was rebellious. And I remember the Holy Spirit of God gripping my soul. And I dug my hands in my pocket of my little Lake Forest jacket, my school jacket, and refused. I won't believe. And yet, through the wooing of the Holy Spirit of God, I surrendered my pride, my little nine-year-old arrogance, repented of my sin, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and at that little church in Denton, Maryland, Denton Nazarene Church, I was declared holy, set apart a saint for the purposes of God. And since that moment, I have lived absolutely sinless. What are you laughing at? You guys know better than that. I've been here for almost 10 years. If you haven't seen my sin yet, you're not looking very carefully. We're all sinners. Becoming the pastor of a church didn't erase my sin. Going to seminary didn't erase my sin. Doing good work doesn't make me perfect. I am, I am perfect in Christ. I have been redeemed through the blood of Christ, and therefore I can call myself a saint. So, a saint is simply a sinner who is saved. Saints are also servants of Christ. That when I was redeemed, that my life was set apart for me, included vocational ministry. My, my job is just to serve Christ wherever He places me. I was, I was telling somebody this week, I have never, since I've been in ministry, ever looked for a position, ever looked for a ministry. Never. They've always chased after me. And so, by the direction of God. So, saints then are servants. They go where God calls them to go. They do what God calls them to do. And saints are also conquerors, not in the imperialistic sense. But Paul says in Romans 8, 37, he said, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That this world can't defeat you. It can't take away your redemption. It can't steal your salvation. You're a conqueror in Christ. Saints are little Christs. The world looks at you and sees Christ. At least I hope so. And when the church, when the community looks at the church, the collection of the body of Christ, we show the world Christ. And saints are also, by the way, lovers of the world. Saints lovingly embrace the lost in the world with tenderness. Saints point the lost to Christ and declare, here is love. I was thinking about that song this morning, on the Mount of Crucifixion, Fountains open deep and wide through the floodgates of God's mercy float a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above and heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. I love that imagery. How often do you kiss the world in the love of Christ? How often do you show the world, the sinners around you, the ones that reject the gospel that you work with, how often do you kiss them, figuratively speaking, hopefully, kiss them in the love of Christ? Compassion. You see, as we enter into this Christmas season, we know that we are entering into 
the time in which many people will be singing Christmas songs and they will be attending Christmas services and they will be listening to sermons and maybe they haven't done that in a while. And we know that in the Christmas season there are people that are looking and searching for their true source of hope. And I don't know what your favorite Christmas hymn might be, but but I can tell you mine. Mine is O Holy Night. The song was actually written in 1847. It was actually written by a man by the name, last name of Adam. And the music was actually originally set to a French poem. It wasn't translated into English, actually, until 1855. And from this song, I just want to read a couple stanzas from it. It says, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. And the second stanza I particularly like, we don't seem to sing it as much as the others, or at least not familiar with it as as much as the others. The second stanza says, led by the light of faith, serenely, serenely beaming. With glowing hearts by his candle we stand, so led by a light of a star sweetly gleaming. Here come the wise men of Orient land, the king of kings, lay thus in a lowly manger, in all our trials, born to be our friend. He knows our need, to our weakness no stranger. Behold your king, before him lowly bend, before your king, your king before him bend. You see, your ability to be a saint in a very real sense, for a New Testament believer, began in a manger, a stall, when the Lord Jesus Christ took on flesh, took on the form of a man, and would live in this sinful world 33-some years, and eventually lay His life down on the cross of Calvary for your sins. In fact, John the Baptist said it this way, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You may be here this morning and I would ask you, what are you hoping in? Maybe, maybe you're here today and you are a saint. You're not sinless, none of us are, but you are a person who can think back to a time and a place that you put your faith in Christ. And since then, you have lived far from perfect, but you have lived committed to Him, a servant to Him, working out your salvation, not working for your salvation, but working out your salvation, growing in sanctification, and you know without a shadow of a doubt in this Christmas season that you're a saint because of your faith in Christ. I urge you to continue to be a faithful saint. A saint that is showing the world Christ. Maybe, maybe you're joining us this morning online. Maybe you're, you're watching us. Our online audience has been very, very good. And maybe you're watching us at home. Maybe you found us by accident this morning. Or maybe you're here in the auditorium and, and you're thinking to yourself, you, you can't think of a time that you have put your faith in Christ. A saint isn't a super Christian. It's a messed up sinner who knows Christ. That's what a saint is. And maybe you're here this morning and you have never put your faith in Christ. Maybe it's in your works. 
Maybe it's in religion. Maybe it's in lots of other things. Everybody has faith in something. But only faith in Christ will allow you to experience redemption, justification, to become a saint, set apart for God. Jesus said this in John 15, 3. He said, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. You see, saints are those in Christ, and they are those who are becoming more and more like Him as they grow in their understanding of who Christ is. This morning, we're going to end with a song. Actually, Gwen is going to come and sing for us. When Gwen is is finished, uh, we'll be dismissed. And I'm going to stay up here at the front. I know it's COVID still going on. I have a mask. If you would like to talk with someone, I would love to speak with you. And maybe you have questions about salvation. You have questions about redemption. I'd be glad to talk with you. Pastor Brian will be around in the back. Maybe someone who brought you this morning, you're more comfortable speaking with them. I would invite you to speak with them before you leave and just get any questions that you may have about redemption answered before you leave this morning. So after Gwen sings, we'll be dismissed.
Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Gwen. Let's stand together and let's be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for this opportunity to worship together. And Lord, I, I think of those words of Christ. Already you are clean because of God's word, not because of our goodness, not because of our works. And Lord, I pray that for those of us that are saints, we're Christians, we're believers, that you would help us to be thankful in the redemption we have and to share that redemption with others. And Lord, I pray before we leave today that if there is one here this morning that is not sure of their salvation or watching at home online right now, that they may seek help and get their questions answered and come to understand what redemption means and how they too can be a saint. God, we thank you for our church, for the opportunity to worship together this morning. Dismiss us now with your blessing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a good day.